This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. In today's episode, I am talking with Susan Chase Edgecombe about her new book, Clearing in the West, Navigating the Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Healing. The untimely losses of her brother, her father, and her husband make this author uniquely qualified to help support you through your loss and grief. She understands that each loss will change one's life in different ways, as she writes about the fears and questions that swirled in her head following each of the deaths in her immediate family. In Chapter 9, she focuses on the first loss in the family when her older brother was killed in action in Vietnam in 1967. Her father died in 1970, just a few years later, and the author writes about this with courageous honesty. Chapter 16 describes the sudden death of her husband in 1984, when he suffered a heart attack while playing racquetball. She writes about her early months as a young widow with a three-year-old daughter and wonders if grief is cumulative. The author realized early on that her family's traditional way of grieving did not work for her. She shares important information on how family and friends' attempts to be helpful can sometimes fall short. She notes that grief overload moved her to be proactive in finding the support she needed. Because of her commitment, she found experiences to foster moving forward and creating a new and satisfying life. Having done so, she decided to tell her story. The author wants to share what she has learned about the process of grief and to inspire others to use her experiences to better understand what grief looks like from the inside out. This memoir is a testament to the resilience, strength, and determination of all those coping with grief and perhaps starting to move forward on their journey. So hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host for the network. And today I am talking with Susan Chase Edgecombe about her new book, Clearing in the West, Navigating the Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Healing. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So we like to start by giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Okay. Um, I will give you a little bit of the backstory so you can get the bigger picture. I grew up in Hingham, a lovely town on the South Shore of Massachusetts. And I was part of a family of five. I had an older brother and a younger sister and my both parents. And it was a very traditional background. Um, We, it was neighborhood schools. It was having friends that lived nearby. It was typical. It felt safe. It felt comfortable. It was happy. We were near the beach in the summer. We were, we had a summer home in Maine. Um, Life was remarkably good and comfortable and smooth sailing. What ended that whole period was that my brother who had graduated from Bowdoin several years before had had chosen to go to Vietnam. He had he was 4F, but when he was um, he managed to get a waiver, and in doing so, he was sent to Vietnam as a as a lieutenant, and his was deployed there. Uh, on May eighth of nineteen sixty seven, I was a junior in college, and I was in my room getting ready to go to to class and and the phone rang for me and they called my name and I went down the stairs it was about 7 30 and my mother was on the other end of the phone and she was sobbing and 
she had just gotten the call from my husband's, I mean, my brother's wife, that he had been killed on the 6th in Vietnam, uh, killed in action. And that was all we had for information at that point. Our life, just as we knew it, <laughs> was devastated. Um, we were totally, totally unprepared to deal with this in any way, shape, or form. I mean, like most families, we had lost several grandparents, but we'd never lost an immediate family member, obviously. And this was just of, Kurt was sort of the center of our family. He was the only son and he, he was um, just, um, just a wonderful older brother and son and, you know, friend. And he, he was just the kind of person that enjoyed life and seized the moment and, and was just very, uh, just people gravitated toward him. Um, that was the first loss that our family had. And it was followed two and a half years later by my father dying of a heart attack. Uh, somewhat, I'm sure part of that was a broken heart <laughs> in some ways, and I'm sure, but he wasn't 100% healthy as, as it was, but that was a huge loss. And my mother had written years later in, in sort of a, a journal kind of thing, that as long as my dad was by her side, she would be all right. But once she lost my dad, that shifted everything. And then after my dad and my brother died and there were just the three, three of us left in the family. And that's when I met my husband. And he was a wonderful, wonderful addition to our family and someone who was just a very um, giving and warm and loving person and fun. And, and he was just what our, what we needed and certainly what I needed. And we had been married 10 years and we were still as a family <laughs> struggling with the gr grief, but I'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, my husband, Ben, um, I got a call similar to when we got the call about my brother saying that he had collapsed on a racquetball court and that I needed to rush to the emergency room as quickly as possible. And when I got there, he, he was dead. He, he died on the spot. So these were three huge losing a brother, a father and a husband within a relatively short period of time was truly overwhelming for a number of reasons, for the obvious ones, but more that um, our family had such a difficult time with grief. Um, my perception from the moment my my brother was killed was that you you just couldn't cry, you couldn't upset other people, you couldn't really talk about it, you couldn't talk, you know, say his name almost. Um, it was that kind of just holding everything in for the sake of other people and, and theoretically protecting other people. That was the model I was seeing with my parents. They, they were heartbroken, but we never saw that. It was always done behind closed doors and usually alone. So for my sister and myself, I was, I was 20 and my sister was 13. Um, we just kind of tried to do whatever we could to make their life as as comfortable as undisrupted as possible. We just were barely surviving this, we felt, or at least that's how I felt. I was with this all by myself. I never shared this with my parents. I never shared, you know, I really kept it inside. And to the outside world, everything appeared to be going well. After my father died, uh, things changed dramatically. Um, my mother was in excruciating pain, but again, her role model was not to, to show any of that to us or to her friend, talk about it with her friends or to sort of be open about it in any way. So she, as she held it in, she became, um, you know, she became angrier and she became, she had no release for any of that. And I, as the middle child had moved into the oldest child slot and was, a nurturer and she looked 
a great deal to me for support. And she would call me when she was lonely or she was having a hard time or whatever. She would always lean on me. And I became that person in the family that was always the go-to person. Um, that lasted for a long time. And I, you know, I really felt that I was still, <laughs> still trying to be as supportive to her as possible, but not necessarily dealing with what I had going on inside. And when Ben died very suddenly, I just knew immediately that I was going to be proactive about sorting this out and understanding what my journey needed to look like, that it was a very individual choice, that it was my decision how I would move forward. If I needed help, I was absolutely going to get it. When your spouse dies, you are absolutely in the center of the storm. It's your whole life that has changed on every single level. And I think that is not understood. On some levels, I felt, well, I know what death looks like. My brother died, my dad died. I had no understanding of the implications of Ben's death. I really, it was just staggering. And I knew that because, as I say, I was the center of the storm this time, I was the widow, <laughs> I had to do this in a very different way than my, the way my mother chose to do it. And that for me was to find a therapist. And fortunately, I had, I had worked with one previously and was able to resume contact and it would, that's another therapy story, but she was wonderful. And she, she truly, um, I saw her every week for a long time and she helped me navigate this journey with, with helping Sarah and being the best mom I could possibly be. And with um, just letting me cry, I could rant, I could rave, I could share the loneliness and the, you know, the, the, the fear and the, the um, longing for what had been, I could share all of those feelings, my own anger at times, my own frustration with her. It was the one place I could be honest and didn't have to protect anyone else's feelings or worry about what anyone was thinking. And that was the best possible move I could have made. And that was an absolute lifesaver for me. Um, and I, I did work with her for a long time and I, I felt, that was the best thing I could do for myself and for Sarah. Sarah was my only priority at this point. And I really had to make it about me. And that is what I ended up doing. And it's so I've had all because I've had all these experiences with loss and grief, I feel I have the credentials to share. And I had really a desire to help other people that are, might be struggling as our family was struggling. And I really felt I had had a, a range of experiences that really could give help to other people and give them ideas and give them some support in what they were trying to do moving forward. Um, I have a very strong feeling about our culture and people wanting you to move on. And I remember early on after Ben died and, you know, I, it, people say, oh, Sue, you look great. You know, you must be doing so well. And that was more for them than for me. They wanted me to be doing well. They wanted me to look well. They wanted things to go back to normal as they wanted me to go back to my old self. And they wanted things to be back where they used to be comfortably for everyone. And that's just not the way it works. Um, I think one of the major things that I've learned through my experiences is that you don't move on and leave the person that you loved behind. You really don't. You, they move forward with you through memories, through letters, through photographs, through stories. But moving forward is the way I choose to think about it rather than moving on. Because to me, moving on implies that you are leaving that part of your life behind, which is just not the case. And those people will always be with you in your heart and your memories. And it's, um, so for me, moving forward is, is the goal uh, and was all those years for me and for Sarah. Um, and still is for me, actually. 
So that that is basically my the inspiration from writing this book was definitely to help others. And that's what I really, really hope this book can accomplish. Yes, and in, in the book, you do talk about your mom's struggle and trying to get your mom to do therapy as well. Want to say a little bit about how that unfolded? Yes, we we have a summer home in Maine, and my mother loved being there. After she was widowed, she excuse me, she um, that she felt that was the one place that she was not at fifth wheel. She could participate in everything. That's sort of a multi generational place. Everyone fits in, everyone gets together. It's very, very warm, old, old dear friends that we've had our whole lives. So she felt the most comfortable there. And at the end of each summer, when she was gonna go back home and be alone again in her house, she, we would have and end up having a sort of a separation situation going on. And it would, and would end up with a, sort of an onshore fight as we left. There would be an argument about something that, so we all <clears throat> left in kind of a huff. And it was very unpleasant. And I would always be returning. I was a teacher to go back to my class and setting it up and so forth. And I'd always arrive with a tight chest and a lot of tension because I knew once again that my mom was gonna be home alone and be lonely and upset. So I finally said, you know, we really need to do something about this to address it. And I had often suggested that she see a therapist, that she, she um, really seek out someone that she could be honest with and someone she could talk to because she, she felt so alone. And like other women of that era, incomplete without a partner. And so all of that, I think, washed over her when it was time to go home after a long summer in Maine. Uh, so we got together as a family. Now, at this point, this was a long time later. I was four months pregnant. Um, and my sister and my mom and I, she, I said, Mom, we're going to take you to see a therapist. And I, there, I had, through a colleague, I had found a wonderful therapist. And we went... So the three of us, we said, you're, we're going and we're going together and we really need to address this. You're very stuck here. You're, you're not moving forward. She was outwardly, but inside and in her heart, she was very stuck in the grief and loss. And she um, finally agreed that she would visit a ther this therapist very reluctantly. And my sister and I and my mom went first and it was very uncomfortable. It did not go well. And at a few points, she left because she just didn't feel comfortable. And then we brought our husbands along. So we had full, full, full group there, full house. And we were all sitting in the therapist's living room. And, and Ben and my brother-in-law, everyone was so generous and so caring. And we made it so plain that we were there for her to help her feel better. And she just couldn't she just couldn't accept it. And she didn't think she needed it. She didn't think we were, you know, we, when we'd say, mom, you're so sad, you're angry sometimes, you know, it would help you to talk this out with someone. She just couldn't, she couldn't see that. So it became, um, it became a non-issue. She continued as she was. Um, and it was a few years after, um, Ben died that, I mean, she, she never sought professional help, but what did happen was um, she ended up remarrying after um, my husband died and she was then able to feel complete and then move forward in a way that was very comfortable for her. And uh, truly she finally moved forward, but mm -hmm. it took a very, very long time. And that was my model. I'm seeing someone be that stuck in grief. And I thought that has to be relatable for so many people that are observing a close family member struggling and not having found their way through this journey of grief. And it was just painful to watch and painful, incredibly painful for her as well. 
But again, I probably was more on the inside track of what was really going on than anybody else was. It may not have been obvious to, to her friends and she put on a very brave face. Well, you, you started talking by explaining how, by all accounts, it was like the ideal family, you know, growing up in Hingham, you know, just everything looked like it was going so well. And I think people always see other families like that. And yet every family eventually has, has things that happen that challenge them. And then I think there's this pressure to kind of go back to like appearing the way you appeared before as if nothing happened, mm-hmm. you know? So I wonder, cause you said, you know, it's, you wrote the book too, because it's frustrating that it's a culture that doesn't really want to talk about this or isn't comfortable talking about this. And it seems like that was sort of the primary issue your mom had. She didn't, she just didn't want to talk about it. Right. She really, I'm not sure. I never understood why. Um, she had a very close circle of friends that she played bridge with. And she and my dad were in a bridge group and very close friends at church and all. But it was a different kind of closeness, I, I would say, than I have with my friends, because I think it was only the fit to print information that was shared with the group. It wasn't deep feelings and, and there was a real connection there for sure. And they were very close friends in their in their way. But that didn't seem to me to include the truth of what what she was really experiencing and how much she missed my dad and how much and I don't. I don't know if that was her being unwilling to share it or other people having trouble hearing it. I know from my own experience as a widow that most people have are afraid, I think, to ask questions about your new life. And it's so painful and so raw in the beginning that you sort of miss that opportunity to share what is really going on behind your, in your heart and in your head and how isolated you feel. And I would suspect that my mom felt extremely isolated. She was the first person in her group to lose her husband. And, and she was, he was only 58. So, I mean, it was a young, it was a younger group. And, um, and they were a very, very tight team. They were, you know, as I say, I mean, as long as he was by her side, she was, she was okay. But there is this, it's interesting that when you're on that side and, and people say, how are you doing? How are things going? And then you move right on to the next thing. It's not in a place or a time where you have time to sit and say, do you really want to know? Um, I remember thinking, I, I, and I sort of did the same thing with my friends, my Hingham friends. I, I would be going to visit them or something. I think, oh, I really wish I could just share what this is really about. But then I would get there and there would be other things going on in their family or, you know, other things to talk about. And, and people really, I always had the sense, and this is across the board, that most people are very uncomfortable talking about widowhood or, you know, losing your spouse or what it's really like. That's just, if you haven't experienced it, I think it's so threatening um, and could happen at any time to anybody. And of course, with the range of ages in my family, I mean, my mom, my sister-in-law was widowed at 23, <laughs> my mom at 57, and then I was at 38. So we're talking really out of sync loss here. And that makes it even more isolating. And I think um, for, for whatever reason, my mom was just unable or unwilling to really share that with her friends. It became apparent. She, she did a, an interview for Channel 2 at one point. And uh, it was about loss. And it, I believe the title was You Were Not Alone. And she was interviewed about the way she had handled this, the situation and what things looked like at that point in her process, which was probably about two years out. And she did a great job. I mean, she really did a wonderful job, but the thing that struck the women, the other widows that were watching her tape it, um, said they just couldn't believe how much she had held in and how little she was able to share with anyone. Um, And how I just can't imagine the pain of that for such a long period of time. And that's why for me, it had to look 
extremely different. Mm -hmm. So myself as a psychologist, this, this kind of stuff can come up in therapy with people where people don't understand why somebody either um, doesn't open up to them or why someone doesn't want to hear what they have to say. And in the book, you tell a little story about how um, there's so much in the book, but how at one point you were talking to a radiologist and um, there's a backstory to that, but you ended up just sort of asking him like, what, 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 do, you, what do you think the deal is? Why can't people open up? And would you share what, what his sure. insight was? Yes, actually, it was a woman doctor. Oh, I, her, sorry. I had said, but I had, um, she was the person in my can. I had, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. Um, and I'm six years now out of, uh, I'm in remission, which is a miracle, truly, because the stage four piece was quite a shock. So that was another kind of loss in terms of turning, you know, changing course and instantly going in a new direction. That's, that's fairly prevalent in my life experience. Um, so this one doctor was particularly tuned in to how this was affecting me emotionally or all of her patients, I'm sure. And when my treatment was finished and I, she gave me a big hug and, you know, we just, I said to her, you know, the hardest thing is as much as I want to share what this is like with my, my closest friends and family, they just can't hear it. I said, a friend recently said to me, oh, good, you're, you know, your treatments are done. We don't have to talk about cancer anymore. And that is the kind of, so when I shared that with her, she said, Sue, the people that are closest to you really have the hardest time hearing bad news, sad feelings, fear, loneliness, any of those things. And that makes so much sense to me. I understood. I understood it in a very different way. And but what it did is when she explained it to me that way, she said they just are not able to hear it. They really want you to be fine. They don't want any thoughts about this going in another direction. But what that does is that again puts you alone with the with the loss, and you, there you are again. And I came to understand in that situation that this was going to be another journey that people close to me were not going to be able to take with me, uh, having not experienced anything like that. But I also, and I also realized it was the beginning of a new, <laughs> new learning experience because um, being in remission is just such a gift, but it, it, there's no way of knowing how long that will, will be. Um, but I thought I appreciated her insight so much. And I could then think, well, this is kind of a universal situation that people just can't accommodate it. And when you're in uh, a battle like that, by your, you feel like you're in it by yourself anyway. But then you, it kind of reminds you that indeed you are, except for very, very few people. And I have been fortunate along the way to bump into kindred spirits or people that just sort of are coming from a similar place or have had a similar experience so that you could just easily understand without having to give a lot of backstory or anything else, people that will and can understand and can be with you in it and hear you. And that is just a remarkable gift because it's a very... It's just, it makes a world of difference when you find one or two people that can really be part of the experience with you. And it's, it's a rare person that can do that who has not already shared something similar. Yeah, so I think it kind of goes back to, again, the, the cultural issues and that, and also your therapy experience. I think in this culture, most of us don't have the skills to, That's manage the, the discomfort we feel physical discomfort we feel when we hear someone open up about the deep pain they've experienced due to a loss or the fear mm -hmm. due to a diagnosis it's so difficult for us to tolerate knowing that you're suffering 
that Mm -hmm. it makes, we end up suffering so much so that we just want to just get away from it. You know, let's, let's, let's not talk about it anymore. Exactly. I I would like to just go back and um, talk a little bit about my first experience with therapy. Um, uh, it was it was two the third year after my my dad had died so I was in a I was in a graduate program at UMass um, for the summer and I was rooming with a friend from work or from school and and all of a sudden one night I woke up and I was there was a, there was an air conditioner that was in, you know plugged into the window I woke up and in a panic was felt like I was, it was so hot, I was suffocating and I had to open the window. And she woke up to see me standing at the window, trying to push and push it open. And I knew I was in big trouble at that point. And I, that is, I it can, you know, I continued to have just anxiety and, and start of depression. And I thought, this is not, this is bad. And this was after, you know, stuffing my feelings down for several years and never having a release anywhere and, and no relief in sight, really, and feeling so alone with it. And so I ended up um, to call, calling my uncle, who was, who was the doctor at Tufts at the time. And he he knew our family dynamic. He knew that, you know, we weren't about sharing particularly. And he, he understood right away when I told him the symptoms I was having, I said, I need to need some help right away. And he found it for me. And it was, it was exactly what I needed. And it turned, first of all, it made it, I, I found such relief to be able to share my feelings at that point. But I also Gain. I worked with this therapist for a while and I realized that this was something I could always go back to. It was like a touchstone for me. And it was such a wonderful relief to know that in my case, that would work. That would really be a, a, a real help for me, no matter what. And that was why years later, uh, but I, but I never shared that with my family. And my mother never knew that I went and my dad, well, my dad was gone by that point, but she never knew about that. And because I knew of her strong feelings about therapy. And um, so I just was, and that was such a, a helpful thing to me to know that I had that as a backup, that if I ever felt those feelings again, that I would know how to deal with them. And that was a real life changer for me. And it has been throughout my life actually. So that's, that is um, just a little backstory to the um, seeking help situation. Sometimes you just can't, you have to, (laughs) that's just, you get to the point where you just can't live with that anymore. And so it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to know that there is access to that so easily and, and that it makes a world of difference, changes your life. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say to that, that more people are aware of that now, and it has actually gotten harder to, it's not so easy to access good mm-hmm. mental health care these days. Mm-hmm. It's gotten harder because people are more aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciate you writing about your therapy, your individual therapy, but also your group experiences too, because you don't, you can be so alone and if you're experiencing that loneliness, sometimes you have to turn to a professional because they can hear it. They, they have the training. They know the research around the benefits of being able to stay present and witness someone's pain. And so they they've the skills that our family and friends often don't have. And so mm-hmm. it, you make it, you make a really nice case about that. Like, so here's your mom. You should feel like as long as your father was by her side, she'd be okay. She loses him and, and just suffers. And, you know, being able to, to allow somebody skilled to be at your side is yeah. a big part of that healing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It made such a difference to me. And, and I know with, with Sarah that I felt she was, she was wonderful in terms of supporting me as a mom and, and the best, you know, helped me be the best mom that I could under the circumstances. Um, I am not sure if this is a good time to bring this up, but 
Well, I'd like to just give a little backstory of the island, if yes. I could. Yes, yes, This is a huge and very important part of my life. And as I as I wrote in the book, this is my uh, spiritual uh, place, and it's my true north, actually. And it's a place I've spent every summer of my life, and I'm now 75. And it's been the one constant in my life. And it's um, the way it came into the family was um, my grandfather, Chase. They, he had two sons, my dad and my uncle. And both sons, my dad had polio when he was 12. And my uncle had osteomyelitis, which he almost died from. So having lost, almost lost both sons, he, they needed a place. They lived in Springfield, Mass. And they needed a place where they could get out of town and be away and be fresh air and, you know, sunshine and all. And so my grandfather had this connection who knew, knew of this very small island on a small lake in Maine. And, and he, you know, recommended that my granddad go up and look at it. And he did. And he ended up buying, buying, um, buying the, the small island, which other, there are other houses on, and then also built a cabin for our family. And we're now the it's fifth generation there. And as much as um, that has has been an incredible incredible gift in my life because it's the one constant that I will always know will be there. And for a long time, uh, it also can be very hard to be there after you have just lost someone that's, that's always been part of that place. And as I was writing the book and I, it became so clear to me that the beauty of having a place like that is that it's sort of like, it holds our family history for sure. Um, my grandfather bought it in 1928. <clears throat> and now my, uh, we have three new grandsons that are, are part of it from my sister's children. And it, it's just a wonderful thing to watch this history repeat itself and the cycle, you know, replaying again and again. And watching those little boys pick blueberries and splash in the lake and, you know, go fishing and do all these wonderful island things that are just so typical. It's a way of truly, it's, it, it's a thread through our lives. And it, it really has allowed our family, in spite of all these different things that have changed, to stay close and stay in touch and be together, you know, from time to time during the summer. And, it's uh, it just, a, it's, it is our hallowed ground basically. And it really uh, has been very important over the years in terms of healing as well, because I know that um, each time when my brother died and we went back and we saw all of his things there and so many reminders and the four of us were trying to do the heavy lifting and you know keep going and, and so forth without saying much about it. And then after my dad died and we went back in the, the summer, uh, six months later, again, same, couldn't unimaginable that he would not be returning. And then when Ben died, we had actually been at the island like in the middle of June and he died June 28th. So we had just been there a few weeks before. But what I had come, it was, it was terrible and I knew what to expect, but on the other hand, over time, those memories, and you feel closer to those people that you've always known and loved there. And you, it's in, I think it's in my bones, <laughs> Frank. I think it's in all of our genes at this point. I mean, we're, it's such a part of who we are and who we've become. And it gives you a certain perspective on life. And Ben was also from Maine. And that was a wonderful connection for us because he had that sort of independent spirit and that outlook and don't sweat the small stuff and enjoy the day. And, you know, don't, uh, he, he was very, very good for me because he brought so much of that and so much of that into our family as well. And he was the right person at the right place and time for us, all of us. And, um, the main, so Maine is, is and always will be a huge, huge part of my life. Um, I wanted to say one other thing. I meant to mention this when I was talking about why I wrote the book. I had, it was almost, not that I wanted to write it, but that I needed to write it. 
when I started um, talking about it just with friends or with my family, they were kind of like, why would you want to write about that? That's going to make be, make you sad and take you back to all those hard times. And, and I just, I, so people kind of, we, I didn't really talk about the book much when I was writing it. I certainly did in my writing groups, but I did not share it with my family or my friends. I just kind of wrote along and, you know, I wrote it not in sequence, but when something was triggered for me by a dream or a memory or a story or whatever I would, and it was raw or fresh to me, that's when I would write it. So when I, I, when they said, why do you, somebody asked me after writing it, why, why did you want to write this, need to write this book? And I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to, I really needed to write it. I just felt that cathartically, whatever, I didn't, I didn't really know, but it was so important to me. I started this book in, um, well, I retired in 2004. I started writing it in 2006. And it was a very, very slow process. And for some reason, it got near the end, and I just couldn't finish it. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get this done. But I, I kept plodding along, and and like you know, writing can be a very lonely experience. You're in it yourself. It's all up to you. You're there. It's in your head. You're you're putting yourself back in these places. Even rereading it to talk with you, so many you know, it just is incredibly um, powerful to go back and and revisit your life that way. And so I wasn't getting anywhere. And two years ago, um, a friend of mine, a very good friend in Florida died. And uh, her husband called me about two months after she had died. And he was really floundering and wasn't sure what direction he needed or wanted to head. And I think he felt I could give him some guidance on that. So we were in touch and I started to send him uh, you know, I, I said, well, I'm writing this book, I have chapters that might be helpful to you right now. And, you know, in present moment, and would you like me to send them? And he said, sure, that would be great. So I started sending him chapters of my book. And he found it extremely helpful, which was helpful for me in real time to see that this was really making a big difference for someone. He read it carefully, he commented, he followed through on some of the, you know, many of the suggestions. And he's made incredible progress. And he was very appreciative that I, you know, was willing to sort of work with him that way. And it was helpful to me because I could see real time that it was a big help for him. So he offered to um, help me get the book published. And he was very good with sequencing and organizational skills and, and getting things together and a deadline editing, things like that. So he was a tremendous help. But I honestly am not sure I ever would have finished this book had I not had someone jump in like that and say, let's, you know, you need to get this done. People need to, to see this and, and read it. Um, so that was a wonderful I don't know, that was just one one time along the journey where something played out and was timing wise, you know, as I said, that there was a synchronicity to that almost that, that the job finally got done and is, and is out there. And that's, a, and it's also for me, a, a big weight off my shoulders because I, it was so, I was so determined to get it done and, and share it. On the other hand, I didn't have the exact skills that I needed to push it through. So it was it was um, a very important part of that's the reason it actually got published finally. Yeah, that's lovely. It's interesting because it's a it's a different rendition of this, a similar story that here there is there's something really pressing on you that you're you know you have strong feelings about and it, it's what are you going to do and the solution again is to find someone to help you, you know, right. like this person yeah. presented himself, but, but not right. really. I mean, you first extended, mm -hmm. you offered mm -hmm. help to him and then he reciprocated, but that's, I think it's a, it's, I don't know if it's unique to our culture in the United States, but why are we always trying to do something by ourselves? It's like, again, it's like, I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to upset anybody. You know, I don't want to tell them about my problems and upset them or, 
ask them to help me get my book published if, you know, that's going to be a burden on them or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, I mean, the antidote to so many of what's really hard for us is to actually turn to someone, you know, someone with skills. Don't, exactly. I think one of the things we do is we seek types of support or encouragement from the same people. And, you know, we just need to realize, okay, I need to find someone with a different skill set. Yes. Um, there's something I want to make sure I say too about the book that it's a heavy topic, you know, as we talk about it today and, and the pain and the cultural discomfort with it all. And so I just want listeners to know it's a, it's a really lovely book to read. Um, it, there is so much about life on the island, the summers, and, and it, there's a real juxtaposition about the beauty of life and the way families stay together and celebrate life together, even if they can't open up about their deeper feelings, that there's a lot of other rituals and things that hold families together. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to say that as I was listening to talk about the island, that you know, could you, and you'd call it at times like a refuge, but you can see how you see it as a healing place. Again, the fact that when you would go back to the island, you'd have to remember your lost ones. You, it's, and you talk about this in the book. It's like you, you have to face your feelings. You have to acknowledge your feelings. You have to, you, not wanting to ever see, you know, your father or your brother's items again is just more of the same burying your feelings. And so, having to go there every year and even to just go to the island to just remember Ben would be here doing this or dad would always take care. Like that's part of the healing too. And again, it's just facing all of this. And um, so I just want to say, you really do kind of try to face it all in this book, but in the context of there's a real, there's a real loving healing story. It's not, it's not all, it's, it's not a heavy, dark read. It's a, it's a nice, like I said, a nice juxtaposition of a story, but with profound insights that, that are kind of just woven in there very gently. Could I, t- uh, I would like to just say a few words about the title. Yes. Thank you. I was going to say that that would <laughs> clearing in the West. Um, yes. And I thought of this title years and years ago when I, when I first thought of writing a book and I, this, this comes from the island and we, my bed is on the um, east side of the house and growing up there when I, I was, you know, I loved the sun and I loved the perfect dark day and so forth. And so I'd always peek out under the blind. And if it was a really beautiful sunny day, then I'd get up and, you know, go right down to the dock. If uh, it was, if it was rainy or cloudy, I'd kind of sleep in a little bit longer, but I was always the person, <laughs> if it was a cloudy day and we felt like, well, not today, I would be looking always for a little hint of sun coming through and a few shadows on the pine needles. And if there was anything that looked like we might be getting sun, I would always say, oh, it's clearing in the West. It's clearing in the West. So that is really, I'm a very optimistic person and I, I continue to be. And I, um, I was, they used, my family used to tease me all the time for prematurely announcing that it was clearing in the West. But that's, that title always felt perfect to me for this book because when I really felt is when I got to the point of having my, my uh, therapist start working with my therapist, finally, after all those years of being stuck myself, I finally began to feel that I, it was in fact clearing in the West and for me and I just um I just couldn't have thought of a better better uh, title for this book it's also my mantra (laughs) so it's important to me well and again I think that it goes back to the deeper problem we tend to just get stuck and think that a dark cloud is going to just stay over us for the rest of our life when in fact We can get ourselves out into nature again. The clouds are always moving. Eventually there is a clearing in the West, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's really just 
maybe that was one of the differences between you and your, your mom, you were so much more attuned to that, to the, the -hmm. natural flow, things do move on. Yes. Yes. It's Mm -hmm. lovely. So we've taken a lot of your time. I I want to check in with you and see if there's anything else you wanted to get a chance to comment on before we, before we wrap up. Um, Let's see. I think I would just say that um, from my perspective, um, we all, we understanding, I think for me that life is not always under our control. In fact, it's often not under our control. It's an important message to take away from this book. I also think that um, you will, there are decisions, there are many turning points on the grief journey. And there are many places that you can just make a choice and make a decision. And that's so important to remember. You, this does not have to be your life to be sad and to be lonely and feel isolated. There are so many places that you, you get to make the choice about what your journey will look like. And I just, um, the, that's a powerful, a very powerful piece. I think for so long, I didn't feel that I had choices and, until I got things sorted out. And I just became so clear to me. And I think um, you have to, the other part that I learned is that you have to really learn to sh- tell people what you need. Um, they can't read your mind. They have no clue what's going on in there. And they really want to help. In our culture, people just, we just don't talk about it enough so that people have any idea of how that looks. And I think that is just remember to, to lean on people that you can when you need to and be sh- very clear about what you need. And for people that maybe are trying to help someone in a, in a grief situation, ask the questions that might get them opening up a bit about it because it's the aloneness that really is difficult and feeling that you, no one understands what you're going through. And once you can break through that, it makes a tremendous difference, whoever those people might be. Lovely. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for writing this book and putting this out there for, for so many people to um, take comfort in. My pleasure. I really thank you for having me today.